thank you for taking the time out. We've been meaning to do this for years. Three, four years now. I think what we showed Midnight Swim at F2. What was that 2017? I don't know. <laughs> the years blend together now. This is our fifth year of UF, and this was year one, so five was, years. Was that year one or two? It was year one. I mean, this is research we should have done before we got her on here. But <laughs> that's why we're going with year one. But yeah, where are you? Where's the is the festival? Where's it located? Uh, San Francisco. Cool. Yeah. Is that where you guys are? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Russ is a uh, San Francisco native, and I've been here for about ten years. So, uh, and uh, just like any San Francisco native, we should have left by now. Yeah. But uh, we're we're still here. <laughs> yeah, you haven't, sure you haven't you haven't been priced out yet. They've tried, Sarah. Oh, they've yeah. tried. Well, uh, last week we did get a notice that our rent went up again. Also, so, yeah. there you go. Yeah, they are coming for you. Trying. And all the theaters are going away too. We're lucky that uh, we we're friends Just with all the, the, the program. Death right? of culture. Oh yeah. Oh no, you put that correctly because all the uh, we have a really weird dynamic here where people on the street are either like probably tech millionaires or you know living there, and it's it yeah. makes for a really weird art culture just the kind of society we want yeah exactly <laughs> hey but we get the haves people. and the have-nots and no one in between yep so. no well we're here still <laughs> I, I i like to consider us upper lower class that i feel like hey. that's a good area you know the middle class is dead so we're upper lower class yeah and um that's how i'm painting that picture yeah so we, we've carved out a little refuge where we uh both show elevated genre movies uh, that we call found footage films and um, low budget uh, oddities that we call found footage films. You, you had one of the, the few movies that when uh, we, we have this umbrella and we say everything is like the Blair Witch Project, when people walk mm -hmm. away having seen The Midnight Swim, they're like, oh, I didn't know this genre made these kind of movies. And mm -hmm. you're, like, you're like, articulate that idea a little bit more. And they're like, oh, I mean, like good. Or like a, a dramatic uh, with characters that we can uh, enjoy. And mm. I, I know we got short time today, so I just want to jump right into this and ask, why was The Midnight Swim a, a found footage movie or like in-world camera? Like, why did you choose that narrative? Sure. Um, I, was, I guess I was really interested in trying to tell a story from inside a character's head. And so I, I didn't really think of it so much as... Um, a found footage movie in the like here's the box of tapes and and it's here are the artifacts that you imagine some imaginary editor found and put together i think uh i was just interested in like having a camera mediate reality for somebody who's not totally comfortable with reality and who's using the camera as her eyeball so that we could almost like be in her brain um and i don't even know honestly if the character june in this movie if she's even if there's tape in that camera like i she might not actually be recording anything um but we're just like seeing the world through her eyes and then there was the practical consideration of like we had no money for the movie and there was something that like allowed that movie to happen because we chose that genre so it was a little little bit of art a little bit of practical consideration yeah, that's always sort of the uh, the the calling card. There is you know it's pretty cost effective in that end. But you know as far as the festival goes, like again, just I just want to reiterate what Russ said is that we pretty much used your film as as sort of the ringer of the situation. <laughs> of you know we we knew the quality, we enjoyed the film, and um, you know it, it's not necessarily counter programming, but when a, a lot of our films are 
you know, having to do with gray aliens and um, <laughs> some sort of creatures and, 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 you know, home invasion and things like that. And now we're bringing this, you know, dramatic I wonder, drama. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how that w- it gelled with your audience. I know the reaction I get with this film is pretty like starkly divided. Half, half the people say nothing fucking happened. And then the other half say they had like a more transcendent kind of spiritual experience of it. But, you know, it's like I think if people go in expecting Blair Witch or a horror found footage movie, I think then they're waiting for that monster to come out and grab them, you know. Um, And then but I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Did your did your audience? Well, did they um, walk out? What was the walkout rate? (laughs) zero percent um i tell you (laughs) it it scored very well and people really really enjoyed it and um i'll take a part credit of that as you know i'm host of the festival so i I try to lay down the groundwork there and and say that you know we're going a different area um and also part of the whole found footage thing is you know we we are in the middle of the the bay area in san francisco and until a week ago, we used to have like what twenty-two theaters per square oh, mile. Sarah, the the theaters are falling down yeah, here. But you know, we have like kind of a uh, a weird mixture of culture in theaters too. We have a large casual audience, and we also have like a very snooty film articulate audience that will go out to the pier and watch uh, a movie, a forty-five minute movie on gears turning. Like we have like really mm. avant-garde crowd, and found footage kind of fits right in the middle. Because we're looking at uh, storytelling through a brand new narrative, and like nobody really ever talks about it that way. So when, when totally saying, lowbrow, highbrow, it's it's yes, yeah, and you know we, we don't take ourselves too seriously either. So when mm-hmm. we sneak into Midnight Swim, people kind of leave like emotionally moved. Yeah, yeah, oh, and, that's and awesome. We also don't have a lot of female filmmakers in found footage, and usually when we're dealing with like a domestic cast. It it usually ends up with the police there and like it's a lot of domestic violence because, you know, found footage has a lot of voyeurism in there where. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. But it, I had to ask right off the bat because you also have like a VHS tape play a part in the movie. And I was wondering if, it, if you actually. Oh, shit. Were, yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, it's weird. I can't tell if uh, we have the, the regular situation here of an incredibly talented uh, filmmaker who has no money. Or if we're actually playing with like narrative and um, format, but huh. it sounds like the you know what? I'm not that smart. I'm not that smart to have like tried to comment on found footage in general with the VHS tape. I did that because I liked the idea both in Midnight Swim and then also my my second movie, Buster's Mouth Heart. I got really like obsessed with this idea of being able to talk to the other side or you know like to another world through a screen. Um, you know, it's kind of what I'm doing with June and her camera anyway. And then I like this idea of like, that's how we meet mom was like through, uh, yeah, the mediation of the screen as a, like this window into another world. So I don't know. I just got like, I really obsessed with that idea. And I, t- I think I take it even further in Buster's Mel Heart, where there's like a lot of stuff that's really important that happens on screens within the movie. Now um, I- I'm a lot of, like weird public access. I'm I'm embarrassed to say it, but right now when we were sitting down, I was like, "Wait, what the hell's Buster's Malheart?" Because we, I just, oh, watched, I I just watched Birds of Paradise, and I was like, Man. "That's a weird leap to take from." <laughs> Actually, you know what? I I was kind of all set up to give you this like a tour theory and be like, "Oh, what's up oh. with your family life?" Because we got a lot of like sibling relationship stuff going on. Oh, here. 
But then I'm oh. like, wait, there's a whole nother movie in here that I haven't seen. Yeah, go see go see Buster. Yeah. And what you got um, Rami Malik in there too? Yeah. Um, yeah. That was another like, you know, super low budget. It wasn't as low budget as um The Midnight Swim, but was still like ultra low budget. It was before Rami was uh, Mr. Robot hadn't come out yet. And he is just absolutely fucking fantastic in it and it was um a similar process to the midnight swim in that uh midnight swim we we improvised off of a robust outline and it was the same with buster um where it's like a deep collaboration between me and the actors and um it's not fully scripted i it so it has a kind of like a has a very i don't know i love that i love both movies but they they have um a quality of surprise to them just through the nature of the process of it not being fully scripted. Were you a fan of found footage at all? Like in-world camera? Not really. I know mean, I should say I am, right? Because I'm on your podcast no, and stuff. But no, like not fine. really. Yeah. I don't know. Like I couldn't name that many. I just, um, my friend, you know, who would play, who was hugely influential for me. It was my friend, Daniel Stam. He made a movie called A Necessary Death. Do you guys know that movie? No. What? And you call yourselves a found footage festival? People I am going to shame you so here. hard right now. You're the brain, not just the face. <laughs> um, it's an excellent movie, A Necessary Death, and you should go see it immediately. He went on to do The Last Exorcism, which is oh, uh, of course. super well-known. Uh, you call that found footage, right? Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. You know what? Um, I think I've been in a yeah. room with them because I was at a premiere <laughs> of The Last Exorcism in a Oh God, Comic Con! I think they showed it in a like theater nearby. Yeah. Okay. Well, he, it's an amazing movie. He's an amazing, super smart filmmaker, and um, he was the one who, because uh, before I made the Midnight Swim, I had been trying to make these other movies that were, um, I don't know. I guess I had planned to shoot them more traditionally, not with found footage, and they were fully scripted. And they kept falling apart, and. Daniel was the guy who was like, I hadn't made my first feature at that point and I was getting really depressed. And he was like, you just need to go make a micro budget found footage improv movie. Just go do it. Just go get your first feature out of your system. And so I really have him to credit for that. And watching, I think his movie, Unnecessary Death, probably, and The Last Exorcism, I think also at that point, were probably like clues for me to be like, okay, I think I can make a movie this way too. That's the extent of my found footage knowledge. I mean, um, it's not unfamiliar. I, I, I make this argument all the time that we kind of have nested our show in the horror community. And early on, we were trying to like undo stigma around the genre. But really, at mm. the end of the day, it's kind of a lot of film fans, like people who just enjoy the medium that come to found yeah. footage. And that's why I think like so many people didn't get unfriended because it's just such a different kind of format and presentation. But there's there's a weird community out there that's in the found footage, and it's just scattered. That's why we've never heard of a necessary death. It's just we, we got to yeah. like bring them all it's together. It's so good. I, you know, I wonder, I can't help but wonder if one of the reasons found footage appeals to us on like as an audience on a visceral level is because now so much of our lives happen on screens. Like we're all filmmakers now, and so there's something that feels very like just at visceral and at the fingertips and, and really like, yeah, 
I know it always adds a layer of reality to it, you know, um, because it feels like documentary, but then there's also just something to the fact that we all kind of feel like we're directing our own found footage movies as we go about our lives now. Yeah. I, I used to just chop it up to, I got so, I tried to be so insightful there and I don't think it worked. <laughs> no, you did. Okay. Here's the, here's the thing. Uh, before doing this, I'm like, you know, I fucking hate talking to filmmakers like Sarah. You're so talented. You're probably so dialed in the film that we have to come in here and be like little Mm -hmm. pretenders again. Are you, dude, birds of paradise. That's a fucking, that's like a, I'm very excited. That's an incredible film. Loved it. I, thank you. you When when you went (laughs) in my head, when you went from midnight swim to birds of paradise, honestly, I was not shocked. I was like midnight swim. That's a fucking that's a masterpiece film too. The 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 performances you got out of the cast, the way you used the medium. And what I was gonna say, like that was a very intellectual statement you made. I always thought it was just uh my ADD. I'm like, I'm bored. So when I watch a Disney movie right. and a character comes on screen, we've got like a hundred years of film under our belt. I already yeah. they've already told me what's about to happen for the next 10 minutes. You can predict everything, yeah. Yeah, but you know, in your film. When you have a character operating the camera, if she zooms in on something, that's you're you're translating part of the story through that one camera action, and you can ignore it. That was or- like the my that was the best part about making the Midnight Swim. I do. It's cool to be talking to you guys right now because my mind has just started to like have a craving to make a POV film again. Oh, in my please. mind, I, I I think of it as POV or something, maybe more than found footage, but like. I almost want to make a POV TV series or something, you know, like there's just something that just feels so intimate and you really get to know that character behind the camera in a way that camera becomes an actor. Yeah. Um, so I, I miss working that way. It was really super satisfying to do on the midnight swim. Um, and I liked it because it created all these rules in a way that were really um, welcome obstacles to the artistic process. You guys ever seen, there's a Lars von Trier strange movie called The Five Obstructions. Lars von Trier. I just wanted to sound really smart and geek (laughs) out with you and and drop an obscure film name. But anyway, the point of that film was he like, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but he basically creates these rules for this other filmmaker to follow. And um, I think the point being that these obstructions, sometimes when we give ourselves these, these obstructions, it can be really freeing. So there's something actually, you know, instigating creatively about having the, um, the rule of, of being in a character's POV. So is, is the five obstructions part of the dogma 95 stuff or? Kind of I, I think it was like he I feel like he broke out of that right like yeah uh, I'm pretty sure everybody did I, I think this was po- yeah exactly this, Nobody's is, gonna put Lars this was after party. that I think well, you know it's yeah. funny because early on exactly. when, when I was really trying to convince people that I was smart I uh, would always compare found footage to Dogma 95 and I'd be like oh. hey you well yeah because <laughs> yeah, there's a lot the of celebration polemic. right yeah, yeah. and the thing is that, you know, we've created all these rules with found footage and early on with the Blair Witch, the audience almost seemed like they show up just to watch them break it and then be like, oh, this is fake. Go to hell. And I'm, I'm glad we've gotten away from there. You're saying the audience shows, shows up to, to watch you break the rules? <laughs> they is do. It, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, with yeah. found footage, well, 
honestly, I don't know. When you put it that way, it almost sounds like they're cheering you on, like break the rules. They show up to like, and they're just ready to shit on you. Like, oh, oh you yeah. had background music. This isn't real. You suck. Right. And it's like, like right, right. Yeah. I mm. honestly No, I, I it was interesting. I I I felt that a little bit when the Midnight Sun was first released. Um um, I think it was more, there was so much going, there was like so many found footage movies, but in a way, um, I think people, people who love found footage kind of dismissed it because they were like, oh, oh shoot, I'm going to, okay, I'm about to say a spoiler. So anyone who <laughs> cares about that, stop we listening. Have that problem <laughs> regularly. Okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> what we do here. Anyway, so there's, there's that moment in the third act where um, the camera moves itself. Mm-hmm. And so for people who were like, sticklers about found footage i remember i got a lot of flack for that um uh, and then the other half people who like didn't like found footage to begin with kind of dismissed the movie because they're like oh it's found footage therefore it's somehow you know they sort of used that derisively as if it therefore meant it was low quality um so it's been like really cool i think to have a re-release now and to be able to, I don't know. It feels like now, now is almost a better time for the release of this movie than when it first came out. And I guess it was 2015, I think. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's been exciting. I feel like found footage as a format has had a chance to, to shift and grow and to like, just become part of the culture and not be this thing that everybody's either like taking a stance for or against. It yeah. seems much more like it doesn't have to, you know, be, Okay. Can I, I just be the thing that divides us anymore? Can I complain? Get in here. Very Get quick. in here. Complain. Who? Okay. That's a stupid statement. If people were <laughs> complaining about that camera moving, because honestly, all right, to be fair, in our early days, when we were first starting this, we were sticklers for a lot of things. Yeah. Remember, we rejected a film because of BGM. I remember. And then two years later, we, we were it. like, that's a really good movie. We need to show it. And we right. broke, and, and now we realize of how. And the director it came over and got drunk and passed out on Said it was the best night yeah. of his life. <laughs> yeah. No, but I'm going to complain because it's not even like a technical rule breaking. Like if you have a paranormal movie and a ghost moves your camera, that count. That's, exactly. that's fucking cool. Now, here's the thing. The, the beautiful thing about Midnight Swim is you don't know why that camera moved. Yeah. And you could argue about that, but to argue that you broke a rule is you're not watching the movie. Yeah. Fucking nerd. All right. Yeah. You idiots. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Sir, I, I, it I did when I was, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say for him, I remember there was a moment. There's always a moment in editing any movie where at least for me, you like you lose your fucking mind all the way <laughs> and you really like, and I'm like in a fetal position on the floor who knows how many hours have gone by. And like my husband comes in and like, you know, taps me gently and is like, do you need like a water? Um, but um, <laughs> for me with the midnight swim, it was like, I started to get too analytical about the whole found footage conceit um, and had forgot, you know, had forgotten that I approached it with a sort of looseness and just wanting to tell this emotional POV story. And I remember there was a moment on the midnight swim when I was deep in post where I was like, none of this makes sense. Maybe she does need, there does need to be a box of tapes. And like, how did, you know, and you started to like, I started to try and um, intellectualize everything and make it all like have this kind of the receipts and the logic of a, um, a found footage movie. And then the more I did that, the worse the movie got actually, you know? <laughs> and so I was like, wait, I need to go back to why I chose this in the first place, which was like, had nothing to do with, um, 
there having been some sort of box of tapes, I just was like, I just wanted to get in a character's head. And once I let that happen, the the edit found itself. Yeah, it's interesting because with your film, um, it doesn't feel like uh, it should have opened with the prompt where it's like the police found this VCR on the side of the yeah. road or anything. Uh, it it yeah. really more because it's like a very like serious drama. It feels like, fuck, all this shit is happening and she's recording it. Like, like this yeah. ugly family moment is now being recorded. And yeah, it, it was weird because it's really like one of the only films in this genre where I've, it really felt like the threat of the camera was in the moment. Not like, mm. not some relic of like a mass murder or anything. And, and, and how, how mm. scripted was the Midnight Swim? So like I said, we were, we were improvising off of a 25 page outline. So it was like, it was robust in the sense that like the structure was there and the beats of the scene were there. The characters were, you know, pretty fleshed out, but then, um, then yeah, the, then the actors and I just like really, um, dove in together. And so some stuff is really improvised. Um, and like magically. So the performances are really amazing. Um, one memorable scene in the movie is when um, everybody's been like drinking at dinner and then they end up going into the mom's room and they take turns um, trying on the mom's clothes and doing impressions of the mom. So that, I think that's a really good example of like how our p- process creatively works. So for that um, I had gone sh- like shopping at thrift stores and like found different items of clothing that I thought would be in the mom's closet. And I put them in the mom's closet and then I said, okay, so we're going to shoot the scene. I want each of you to go in, take it, take turns one by one, put on something you want to wear from your moms and come out and do an impression. And that was it. And that was like, that was the prompt. Um, and then, and that's the scene that you see is what we shot that night. Just me giving that prompt and then just working with the actors and observing what they were doing and, you know, giving them little bits of feedback here and there, but also just really wanting to be a fly on the wall and watch this like family life happen. So, sir, like the, the and that and that speaks on my next point here is I from what we've seen and one of the mainstays in all of the films that you have is a strong cast. So, what's your process there of of getting these people? Because again, you know, um, you know, I I imagine that Birds of Prey was a little bit more scripted um, than your previous two. So, yeah, it's still that chemistry was there because the two leads you have in there, unbelievable. And so what, what's the secret there? So, so Birds of Paradise was fully scripted for sure. So like, it was definitely a different process than the Midnight Swim, but no less, um, I I don't know, I guess every actor is very different. So I don't, there's not like one process, I guess, but I, I do try to like form a really, um, deep trust with everybody and, um, to kind of have like, um, I want to make sure it feels like a workshopping environment where everybody feels really safe to fail. Um, and I think that that's the most important thing. Um, because, and because I, I want to feel safe to fail too, because I think it's really important that we all, that everybody feels like they can take risks and try something and fall flat on their face and like still be loved and, you know, not kicked out of the tribe in some way. Like that's like our basic social need. Right. So I, I really feel like that's kind of um, the first step for me in directing. And then it just becomes really about the material and the story and getting things wrong and like just uh, 
um, trying to find moments of silence. And also just then like on the day when we're actually shooting, um, I just try to really show up for the actor, let them know they're going to be in really good hands, let them know that I'm going to be, you know, editing it um usually myself and and like i'm gonna make sure like they can never i'm never gonna make them look bad and i try to make sure that they know that so that they can just really go all the way and then i don't let up on them and i i push them till i get till they get to where they need to get you know and so um yeah try to do that with just as much like um care as possible and sometimes i try to you know have different techniques, but sometimes it's also a matter of like going there with them because some of emotions can be really scary. And so like knowing that they don't have to like to hold those with them and not feel like they have to do that alone um, can be helpful too. Now, when you make a ballerina move. Oh, good. <laughs> what's, what's the research process on this? I mean, did, did you do a lot? Do you, do you try to figure out how ballerinas uh, walk yeah. and talk when they're not performing? Yeah. Like, you know, all, all that stuff. I took karate as a child. There it is. And I was not karate. And I was also not great at it. Um, but <laughs> so I did not take ballet as a child. So I decided um, I can be like, a Paquito method about directing, I suppose, where like, I like to try and like do the thing myself. Um, Mm. so like when I was directing, when I, um, directed Hannah for Amazon prime, I like went and took like fighting classes. And so with the birds of paradise, I did sign up for ballet class and, um, it was humbling. Like it is so much harder than the fighting classes I took. It is like, so it, uh, yeah, ballet is, I think ballet should be an Olympic sport. I actually think it would be riveting as an Olympic sport. It's probably like one of the most athletic feats on planet earth. It's really no question. Pretty astounding. Um, uh, and I was terrible at it, but it gave me great empathy for, um, cause I was going to, you know, the two lead actresses were not ballet dancers and had to go through really crazy training. So I wanted to at least tell them, be able to say thank you from like a true place in my heart, like having known at least a little bit of what they're going through. Was that part of the casting process where you, where you guys were looking for ballerinas at some point, or I mean, ultimately just trying to make it work either way. And you know, it wasn't, you got to carry a movie here in the process. Birds of Paradise was a slightly different project for me in that um, Christine Froseth and Diana Silvers were attached to the project before I came on. Like the book was given to me um, by their managers who were producers and they were like, hey, would you ever want to adapt this for these two actresses? So it was a little bit different in that I wrote the parts for them um, and um, and knew full well that they weren't ballerinas and that you know you can't make a ballerina overnight, but that they were um, willing to go into training. And then, um, so then I was like, well, if my two leads are not ballerinas, then I'm going to make sure everybody else I cast is actually from the ballet world. So then all the other, um, people in that movie are actual, you know, professional dancers who have never acted before. So it was pretty cool. Actually, it was really interesting and different to work with, you know, people who had never been on, been on camera in a movie before and then, and then more seasoned actors, but who had never danced before. Now I'm reading 50 books a year. 
That's my new goal. It's not going to happen. And I'm 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 about to round uh, the sixth one up mm. right now. So I'm on pace. Mm. Now I I might be cheating a little bit with comics and stuff, but mm. now I, I'm curious. I think I'm going to read this book. How close is the movie to the uh, novel? Oh, um, so Birds of Paradise is an adaptation of Bright Burning Stars. It is. I would call it. 32% similar. Right. <laughs> Good. Uh, Shaquille. And they're both in the world of ballet. Uh, featuring <laughs> you should read it. Tell me what you think. I, yeah. I totally I mean, there's, will. there's some, there's a vibe. I definitely like jumped off the vibe, but, um, but then went a little, you know, went a little crazy. Did my now, own thing. Now, now I did lead you to a bear trap here because I'm curious what elements were important that you picked out. Because, you know, with uh, comparing this to Midnight Swim, I've noticed a couple of themes. Mm. Here we go. Yeah. So I'm curious what elements, like, because I've heard, like, uh, Hitchcock, I've, I've read stuff that he read where he's like, you know, I read a book until there's something that inspires me. Mm-mm. And then I just take that and I shut the book because it doesn't matter. Anymore. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that he does that. Yes, that's what I do. Oh, I mean, I'm like, I'm basically Hitchcock. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we've said. This yeah. I mean, better. <laughs> um. Yeah. No, well, I, um, in Bright Burning Stars, so do you remember in Birds of Paradise, Kate tells M that story of how the stars were formed? Yep. So that story was, that's not in the book, but it was a story that I grew up, um, like being told around the campfires, just like, um, from Colorado. And I think like camp counselors would tell that story around the campfire, different versions of it, but it was always like a story that resonated with me. And when I was reading Bright Burning Stars, the book, I kept thinking about that story about like um, how the stars were formed. And um, I'm always interested. And it's actually, this is relevant to the Midnight Swim. Um, I'm interested in characters who are striving for the impossible. Um, and, you know, like in, in the Midnight Swim, June want something completely impossible which is you know her mother is is gone and she wants to find her again yeah um so she she wants to sort of bridge the worlds um and go find her again it's it's an impossible desire and yet um Jacques Cousteau famously famously said impossible missions are the only ones that succeed uh and uh that's that's uh that's my I feel like my motto as a storyteller. I think I really am interested in characters who who go after it anyway. Well, what was the impossible goal in Birds of Paradise? The prize? It was I think for Kate it was like greatness with a capital G. It was like achieving some kind of stardom. Um and I think I was interested in whether one like can can you achieve the highest heights in whatever career path it is that you choose in her case it was ballet can you become the prima ballerina of the you know paris opera ballet which would be like the creme de la creme top gold prize or whatever in the ballet world can you achieve that and still be a good person or is there a necessary compromise along the way that you make all right. Now, because we have Sarah, um, everybody should go watch Birds of Paradise. But I got to I got to talk about like the third act in here. It's so interesting hearing you say that, because I always 
I thought you actually had a little. Okay, first off, I had no idea. Like this, the mental picture I was getting of you after watching this film, I'm like, oh, is she like some super intellectual bilingual who lived in like Paris for a while and is making some uh, deep commentary on like our work ethic in America? Because now I had mm. thought you were doing something where uh, like twins and siblings are a big theme in here. And I thought we had an American twin couple. And one was like motivated by art and the other was more of a monetary thing, which I was going to bring up because of Midnight Swim, too. We both have characters who have in the background, uh, their like family home is gone or is disappearing. And I was like, are you making some harsh critique on like American like uh, like tunnel vision when it comes to work? Because Kate goes mm. out there and you're rooting for her because she's our protagonist. But at every turn, she's given us clues like Kate kind of fucking blows. Like, what kind of books have you been reading? <laughs> well, do you get what I mean? Because look, yeah. at, the, look at the end. I, Go ahead. I'm really excited for you to watch uh, Buster's Malheart, actually, because I think you're going to get the narrative you're hungry for in that movie. Um, oh, are you it, saying uh, I'm projecting sort of, all over your film? Of the, <laughs> no, I think that you're maybe maybe there's small threads of that. I'm interested in class for sure, um, and there's some small threads of that in both Birds of Paradise and maybe a little bit in the Minute Swim, but there's a much larger thread of it in Buster. So you should go check that one out. Well, kind of like the people who we follow along in both stories with Midnight Swim and Birds is a character who's kind of unsure of their journey in the background. They're both losing their family home and they don't feel as connected to everybody around them. So it kind of feels like you just got to hold on to the only thing, you know, which might be like this crazy goal. You also have these cool, like oral story, like, like folk yeah. elements to both. Yeah. And I'm like, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So what, how do like you grow stories up? within stories? <laughs> I'm like, what, what was like your family life? Like, Oh, well, um, I will, you know, both in the Midnight Swim and in Birds of Paradise, the, the stories within stories, the kind of legends yeah. that you hear at the center of the stories, those are sort of autobiographical. And like I said, in Birds of Paradise, I grew up hearing that story around a campfire. And um, and then in Midnight Swim, the story of the Seven Sisters was a story my mom told us growing up um, as a cautionary tale uh, so that we wouldn't try to save a drowning person because they might pull you under. And I was always like really haunted by that story because how could you not try to save somebody that you love um, from drowning? Like there's something so it's really harsh um, to not try and jump in and to, to, you know, tell your child, don't try and save a drowning person. Um, so yeah, that was just, I think that became the theme of the midnight swim of like, um, especially in the relationship between the sisters, like June, this is not the first time June has had, um, I don't know what you want to call it, like mental breaks like this before, you know, she's really like put her sisters through the ringer before and they have to make that decision of like, do they try and save her or do they let her go and not try to save the drowning person? So that's a real, um, it's a real tragedy because of that. Can I ask you, while we're talking about June, where did the like eating alone thing come from? You know, that was just something that came to me really early on about her character. 
I remember. So when I gave the the scriptment that we worked off from, uh, that we worked off of, uh, it started with just character descriptions and then the outline of the movie. And that was just something that was like really early. I felt like once I learned that about June while I was writing, I was like, okay, I understand who she is. And I think it comes from like a person who was never fully at home being alive to begin with. I had a therapist who once told me that um, until the age of like five or six, kids choose whether or not they want to be here until they reach the age of reason. They're still deciding whether or not they actually want to be here. And I was like, June is a character who never fully decided, who like kind of never was fully here. And something about eating is just so primal. It's like you're masticating in front of people and like, you're you're using your animal teeth to like gnash and break down um the sun that has you know changed forms and you're uh, it's just it's a very you're watching digestion and she i think she found it very grotesque um to it would be, it would be like the equivalent of having people watch you take a shit you know so like she couldn't <laughs> eat in front of people for that reason she just was not fully at home in a body yeah, I man, I had a coworker that couldn't eat in front of people uh, because he has a very small esophagus, and he would choke all the time, and he didn't like choking in front of people. Wait, he was like, a, and then we had a work dinner, and he choked in front of worry. us, and he was in a bathroom for forty five minutes. Randy, cut that out. <laughs> no, that's you know what an incredible detail to give a character, especially when like you know one of the easiest way to uh, like connect with somebody is to break bread. Like, let's sit down and share a meal. Like, it's it's one of the smallest things you could do for somebody and, you know, instantly become endeared. And it's so rough. Like, because I, I rewatched the movie last night and I'm like, man, it's brutal watching her sit at a table and not eat. Yeah. Something about it's very that. Very lonely. Yeah, it's, it's rough. I, man, it's incredible. I I wish we we had a larger voice because people need to watch Midnight Swim. I feel like found footage is kind of like you know it's trapped in a horror umbrella when really it's just a way to tell a story because you know you look at mockumentaries and there's so many comedies and like earlier you said you want to make a pov film i would call like hardcore henry anything where it's just a point of view you know first, first found footage movie not a horror film yeah that's true there's um david holtzman's diary yeah and it's like i i really um you, it's so easy to connect to characters when you're like literally like embodied in one, like with June and uh, your movies are, they're rough. They're heart wrenching. I don't know. I oh, Thank you guys. Well, you guys are, you guys are um, super cool and you're actually inspiring me to want to watch more found footage. What, will you give me like top three recommendations? What should I go watch? I'm so bad at that. <laughs> we should we give should. me one. How about one? I mean, do you want one? Now, one, okay, what kind? Do you want a faux documentary? Do you want a horror film? Do you want a POV film? Do you want something? I just want a good movie. I'm just hungry for a good movie. All right. What are you looking at me for? Give her one. I'm thinking. I instantly, so normally when we talk to people, they're horror fans. So they're like, they're kind of like uh, in the back of their throat saying, scare me. I'll give one, you give one. Okay, go ahead. Nor I the Curse. Okay. Writing it down. It's on Shutter. Here, do a Japanese. It is. It, it is essentially um, the procedural of found footage films. It's it's a two hour epic. Um, oh procedural. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The premise. 
that one is about a documentarian picking up where another documentarian left off. It's a Japanese film, uh, Koji Shirashi. He's probably the best uh, found footage director to have lived. He's, Actually, he's, he's one of the more prolific, certainly. But not, because there's really no, there's no like adulation. There's no audience here. But, but in terms of his work, he's got like oh, dude, he's seven great. found footage features. Um, dang, I was going to try and stall. Okay, that. wait, give me one more. And then, I, and then I have to be super rude and go. Yo, but give me, give me one more. All Rack. right. Um, well, why don't you do a, uh, oh, okay. You want a heady one? I just watched one, and I think you have the intellect for it. I had a hard time hanging with it. It's called The Corroborators. Okay. okay. Watch that one. It's a awesome. uh, faux history. It's like a retelling of fake history, mm. but um, mm. it's done very classy, and oh my God, it kind of shows you how Great. a documentary can uh, mislead you and be very convincing. Oh, that sounds cool. That sounds really good. Sarah? Um, you. You guys are awesome. I hope we'll meet in person one day and go save all the theaters. No, no pressure, but you know, it's up to you to save all culture. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Overlook Hour. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcatcher of choice is. And while you're there, go ahead and give us a rating and or a review, which is a very easy way for you to support this show uh, that we bring to you every week for years now, free of charge. And as always, you can find us on YouTube at The Overlook Theater, Instagram at The Overlook Theater, Facebook at The Overlook Hour, and Twitter at The Overlook Hour. Last but not least, you can send us your emails and tell us how much you like or dislike the show at overlookhour at gmail.com. And if you're nice, maybe we'll uh, read them on the show. I've been your engineer, Randy Statt. Please join me along with Clark, Russell, and Oksana again next time. Bye. <laughs>